We will read uh, verses 11 through 15 to get some sense of the, the context. There's 2 Corinthians 5, focusing on verses 14 and 15, and really mainly uh, verse 14. As we consider uh, the canons of Dort upon the occasion of the 400th anniversary of the convening of the Synod of Dort, uh, thinking tonight about the, the second head of doctrine, uh, dealing with the atonement. So let us consider these things together as uh, we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reading in verse 11. This is God's holy word given to us for our good. Let us attend to it. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we said, considering this teaching, and particularly uh, the second main point of doctrine found in the canons of Dort, last week, first head of doctrine, we considered uh, divine and eternal collect, uh, election. So it doesn't proceed in, in the order that you would think, knowing our favorite acronym, TULIP. It begins really with you, unconditional election. And next, the second uh, main point of doctrine has its focus on Christ's death and human redemption through it. This deals with the L uh, in TULIP, which is referred to often as limited atonement. This has been one of the most criticized doctrines of the Reformed tradition over the last several decades. As people chew on this question, for whom did Christ die? And uh, there's something about this idea that tends to not sit well with people, this idea of limited atonement. And perhaps it it might be even just in the name, right? It, It might sound Uh, bad to some people, limited, limited space available, limited access, right? Why would you want to to limit the atonement? And for that reason, people have thought of it as cold or gloomy. And uh, we aim to show tonight that the opposite is the case. It actually is this doctrine of limited or what you might call definite atonement or even actual atonement that really produces unending joy in the heart of the believer. Not only that, but it's, it's, a, it's a better offer of salvation to the non-believer. The gospel that you preach of definite and actual atonement is not only comforting to us, but it is, it is a better offer to the world when we consider the work of Jesus Christ. But in order to prove this, we go to this passage that has certainly been employed to argue the opposite point, which we are 
making. This is a passage people will often point to to try to prove that Jesus did indeed die on the cross for all people without qualification or specification. All people at all times in all places, Christ was bearing their sin on the cross. That's what some people argue from this passage. But Paul uh, proves the opposite in this passage. It's important to see that and how exactly how he does that and how that produces joy in our lives. So let's turn to this text and we'll just sort of unpack it uh, phrase by phrase and see what the Lord might have for us to teach us and to bless us through his word. First, a little bit of background on the occasion for 2 Corinthians and where we are in the book. And then we'll, we will begin to deal with the, the phrase that the Christ's love compels us. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul quite often is defending his apostolic ministry. The Corinthians, many of them had been infected with doubt about Paul and about his status as an apostle. There were enemies of Paul that had made the argument that, that Paul's life was actually evidence against the claim of his being an apostle. They would say he suffers too much. He, he goes through too much hardship. He's too often in trouble. Surely he is not chosen by God or protected by God to be the one sent out in, into the world to be the particular apostle to the Gentiles. And this is perhaps a powerful way of arguing uh, even in today's world. Many Corinthians began to think certainly that if, if Paul were an apostle, if Paul would have been one that, that met face to face the risen and exalted Lord on the Damascus Road, and has been employed in this work of proclaiming the gospel through the wor- throughout the world, then certainly he would have more numerous earthly comforts than he has. Many folks today, as I mentioned, be infected with the same kind of thinking. Where is God really at work? Well, they would say, where is power and influence uh, at the highest What are the churches and organizations that are growing the most? The ones that have uh, the the best-looking bank statements. The the, the flesh thinks this way all of the time. Whether in the church or outside of the church, people are attracted to this kind of thinking. And we tend to equate circumstances with the favor of God. That's what we tend to do in our lives. Now, make no mistake, good things and good gifts do come from God. And there certainly is a relationship between deeds and consequences. We need to be aware of those things. But uh, when God does give good gifts to his people, it's not a result of our gaining favor with God. We have to approach this in a different way. It's the difference between being grateful and not boastful. Right? When God gives good gifts to his people, we're filled with gratitude. We don't boast in, in what we have gained, the favor we have gained with God in the way that he has shown it to us. The specific reason for why God gives this or that to one person or another, that specific reason is known only to God, the mystery of his providence. In Paul's case, he knew that he had been appointed to serve as an apostle to the Gentiles for the sake of Christ's church, and that this status was unaffected by earthly circumstances. Even if Paul was imprisoned, 
he would write letters. And those letters would be uh, distributed, showing that even while he was in chains, the word of God is not bound. The gospel is not bound. Thus, Paul teaches the Corinthians, reminds them of these things right up until uh, chapter 5 and verse 11, where he begins to explain the nature of his ministry, what it is that he does or what he is doing. So he is an apostle in wealth and in poverty. So what is he to do? What is he, how does he execute that call as an apostle? That is what he is showing the Corinthians here in the midst of our passage. We persuade men. Paul says. And this is the starting point of his ministry because it is the power of his ministry. The gospel is to be, to be proclaimed to all people. And we connect that to what we talked about last week. Does God have a definite number of people whom he has elected to salvation from before the foundations of the world? Yes, of course he does. But from a human perspective, we don't know who the elect are. And that's why there is this call to preach and proclaim the gospel. And the canons of Dort come back to this idea numerous times. For instance, under the second head of doctrine that we're considering tonight, Article 5, the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. Moreover, it says, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and all people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. This is the call of the church to preach and proclaim the good news that God might gather his elect unto himself. And so Paul says he goes about this work by proclaiming this message. And in our specific passage tonight, he gives us wonderful and fascinating truth about that message. He begins verse 14 by saying, Christ's love compels us. Many translations will have the love of Christ, the love of Christ, which sort of leaves that phrase open to interpretation, right? If I say the love of a father, do I mean the love that a father has for his children or the love that children have for their father? It can be either one. So a lot of times those who interpret scripture, those who translate have to make these decisions. Uh, Certain Uh, translations like the the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, they'll leave this on, they won't interpret it for us. They'll just say the love of Christ. The New International Version, our Bible, tends to sometimes interpret these for us. And they're on the right path here by saying Christ's love. That is what Paul means. It's, It's the love that Christ has for his own. Christ's love compels us. What does Paul mean by that phrase? Well, keep in mind, that Paul has given a defense of his ministry and now is giving a description of that ministry. He's speaking about uh, himself and those who labor in the gospel with him. People like Timothy. Timothy spent time uh, with Paul in Corinth and was actually sent back to Corinth in order to call the Corinthians to repentance for rejecting Paul and Paul's apostleship. So it's as if Paul is saying, Christ's love compels me and those who labor with me. This word compels has the idea, it carries the idea of holding within or holding fast. It has the idea of holding things together. Laws hold together our land, right? Or a community is held together by love and by virtue. 
Paul says that it is Christ's love that holds Paul fast to his calling and to his ministry. And what Paul is going to do within these short two verses is show what Christ's love specifically is and how it not only compels him to complete his work as an apostle, but how it compels us as Christians to serve Christ with our lives as those who are forgiven and renewed in him. The love of Christ binds Paul to the gospel ministry. And likewise, the love of Christ binds us to serving him with our lives, like what we talked about this morning, serving God, body and soul, as we are renewed more and more in the image of Christ. We move forward in the passage. Paul explains why it is that Christ's love binds him to his work by showing what Christ's love is. It's important to see that it stems from his understanding of Christ's love. He has an understanding about it. He has an understanding that is, uh, that is solid, objective truth about the love of Christ. When Paul says Christ's love, it's not some nebulous idea that's hanging in the air. It's rooted in knowledge. It's a conviction about something. It is rooted in truth. And that's really what the Christian faith is. It's not a nebulous arrangement of feel-good ideas. Though truths do eventually reach our emotions, though when they reach our emotions, it makes us feel much better than simply good. Christianity is an announcement of facts, of God's work in history, of who God is and how he has revealed himself. And doctrine comes about when we apply those facts to the work of redemption, to what God is doing and what God reveals to us in his word. So notice how Paul, central to the thinking of Paul, is his idea of knowing truth in order to ground his understanding of love. Uh, Love without truth is merely sentimentality. We need to know what it is and what Christ's love actually is. Paul says, One died for all, therefore all died. We're going to skip forward and, and consider what Paul means by therefore all died and then come back to consider that Christ died for all, as Paul says. It was J. Gresham Machen, my personal American theological hero, who said that on first glance, when you consider this, when you consider this phrase, one died for all, therefore all died, he seems to have it backwards, doesn't he? You say, if one dies for all, then it would seem that all would not die, right? If someone dies for someone else, the very reason they do that is so that the other one does not have to die, But Paul says, one died for all, therefore all died. He seems to have it backwards here. We might think that if this really is what Paul is trying to say, uh, he might change the connecting words. One died for all, nevertheless all still died, right? Not therefore. One died for all, nevertheless all died. But what Paul is teaching here, and this really gets us on the road to understanding limited, definite atonement, what he is teaching us here is the power of the reality of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. He is saying that the death which Christ died, when the benefits of that death are imputed to those who believe in Christ, then it is, in fact, just as if you had died that death. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we confess together Christ's descent to hell. We say he descended into hell. Much much, uh, discussion 
about this, especially around the time of the Reformation and afterwards, whether or not what we should think about this in the Apostles' Creed, because if we take the words as a, a literal geographical description of what Christ does after he dies, then in fact we cannot agree. And our standards, particularly our catechism, is careful uh, to point that out. But Calvin and the early reformers noticed something. What if we take that phrase, he descended into hell, as a phrase to describe what happens within the death of Christ itself. If we do that, then all of a sudden we take something that the Roman Catholic Church had used in error, and we used it to to remind ourselves about the substitutionary nature of Christ's death on the cross. Thus, what what are we confessing when we say that Christ descended into hell? We are saying that there is nothing in his death that does not fulfill the demand upon condemned human beings that would send them to hell if Christ was not their substitution, if they would have remained in their condemnation. In Christ's death on the cross, he went to hell for those for whom he died. That is the power of the cross. And it is just as if you have died. And so Machen goes on to describe a hypothetical conversation between the law and the sinner. Man, says the law of God, have you obeyed my commands? No, says the sinner, I have transgressed them in thought and word and deed. Well then, sinner, says the law, have you paid the penalty which I have pronounced upon those who have disobeyed? Have you died in the sense that I meant when I said, the soul that sins and that breaks my law shall die? Yes, says the sinner, I have died. That penalty that you pronounced upon my sin has been paid. What do you mean, says the law, by saying that you have died? You do not look as though you had died. You look as though you were very much alive. Yes, says the sinner, I have died. I died there on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. For Jesus died there as my representative and my substitute. I died there so far as the penalty of the law was concerned. You say Christ is your representative and substitute, says the law. Then I have indeed no further claim of penalty against you. The curse which I pronounced against your sin has indeed been fulfilled. My threatenings are very terrible, but I have nothing to say against those for whom Christ died. Such is the power of Christ's death. But for whom is that death? For whom did Christ die. It says here, one died for all. All is the word in question. Can Paul mean that Christ died for everyone in all places and at all times? No, quite simply, he cannot mean that. That cannot be what, what Paul means here. Those who would come to this passage trying to prove that Christ died as the, the sin substitute For all people in all places disregard the evidence of this passage, which points us in the exact opposite direction and actually affirms what we read in Article 8 of the Canons of Dort, second head of doctrine, saving effectiveness of Christ's death. It was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him 
by the Father. All those and only those chosen from eternity by God, these are the ones on whose behalf Christ died. A couple of comments and things that we notice from this passage to prove this. First, Paul's entire context around this passage is in regards to the church, not the world. So that changes the way that the word all operates. From the beginning of chapter 5, Paul speaks about our eternal dwelling and our eternal body that's laid up for us in heaven. When he says we or us, he cannot be talking about all human beings without qualification, but rather those who are joined to Christ's church. In verse 16 of this, pa- of this chapter, after our passage, Paul says that he regards no one according to the flesh. No one is as exclusive as all is inclusive. But surely Paul cannot mean that he regards no one that he ever sees anywhere according to the flesh. And that all would then be in Christ. Rather, he means all those who are living as believers. Finally, Paul is explaining that his gospel ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. He goes through the world proclaiming the gospel so that people might be reconciled to God. That's what he says when he says, we persuade men. We go and we preach the gospel, hoping, praying that God would reveal to them their sin so that they would see that Christ is their only mediator and their only savior. But if uh, Paul means here that one died for all, then it would mean that the idea of the ministry of reconciliation is superfluous and pointless. If Christ died for all, there would be no reason to have a ministry of reconciliation because everyone would then be reconciled to God. And that highlights the impossibility of the Arminian position on the atonement of Christ. They might go to this passage because it says that Christ died for all, but it proves too much for them to be able to claim it as their own. The Arminian uh, teaching, which is what was being addressed at the Synod of Dort, of a universal atonement is is that simply that Christ's, Christ's death opens the way for salvation. It opens up the possibility. Christ died equally for all people so that at some point some may believe and accept these possible benefits of his death that have been made, that have been made accessible uh, to all. But thanks be to God that that is simply not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus' death actually saves us. It saves us in the sense that at the cross we are saved. At the cross, salvation is one for us. Those benefits still have to be applied to the elect in time and in space. And certainly we could, we could add the resurrection to that. Paul says in the book of Romans, Christ was raised for our justification. But even though those things have to be applied to the elect in time and space, it is as good as done. It's as good as done because Christ finishes his work on behalf of those whom God has chosen. The Old Testament, when it speaks of the atoning death and the suffering of the Messiah, describes it in terms that sound extremely Calvinistic. Isaiah 53, for instance, it was, the, which, of course, really the, the crown jewel of messianic passages in the Old Testament. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then it says this regarding the Messiah. He shall see his offspring. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. See, that's many there. It doesn't say all. And it says, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Isaiah 53 teaches us that those who are accounted righteous because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, those are the ones whose iniquities are borne by the Messiah. We think about this in tandem with election. Uh, This makes perfect sense. Those who were given to Christ, even before the foundations of the earth were laid, are the ones for whom he came to live and to die. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. He came from heaven not just to claim any bride. He came from heaven not to find out which one was his bride, not to look around and decide who was the most desirable for him. From heaven he came and he sought her, the elect, the church, those given to Christ even before the foundations of the earth were laid. God, being God and existing outside of time, can do all of these things. This is no problem for him. This is, in some sense, mysterious to us. uh, But we rejoice in it, and it gives us great uh, comfort. The problem with the Arminian teaching is really that it ends up becoming the cold and the gloomy doctrine. It, It itself becomes rather cold and gloomy, because what you have there is a universal atonement without a universal salvation. Christ died for everyone without qualification, all people, all times, all places, and yet not everyone, they say, will be saved. There you have people for whom Christ died who would still suffer eternally in hell. And so I'll quote one more time. Uh, Theologian J. Gresham Machen, he says this, I tell you, my friends, if I thought that, In other words, if I became a consistent Arminian instead of a Calvinist, I should feel almost as though the light had forever gone out of my soul. No, indeed, my friends, Christ did not die there on Calvary merely to make possible our salvation. He died to save us. He died not merely to provide a general benefit for the human race from which we might at some future time draw as from some general fund, what is needed for the salvation of our souls. No, thank God, he died there on the cross for us individually. He called us when he died for us by our names. He loved us not as infinitesimal particles in the mass of the human race, but he loved us every one. When we think about the atonement, we must know and understand that Christ died for those who had been given to him even from eternity. Was it sufficient for the whole world? Was his death sufficient for the the whole world? Sure, of course it was. Perfectly righteous, true God, true man, absolutely perfect mediator. He lived a life that was sufficient, that that could be counted as payment for anyone, all the world. Infinite value of Christ's death. Nothing would need to be added if each and every person in this world would have been added to the bride of Christ. But in the wisdom and the pleasure of God, he elected a definite number 
whose names are written in the book of life. And because of Christ's work for them, they will be saved. And that is the call to faith. That is the way that those who have faith in Christ are to understand his work on the cross for them. Remember the words of our catechism. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence or assurance that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted the forgiveness of sins. It's not, it's not just that you believe that God's word is true, that you assent to its truth, that's absolutely indispensable. But it's a firm confidence and assurance and a trust that Christ's work is for me. That it's effectual and effective for me. Arise, my soul, arise. One of my favorite hymns, that beautiful line. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. What an unbelievable truth to consider. Even before you were born, as Christ ascended into heaven and presents his work before the Father, that he presents work that is effective to save so many who had not yet even been born, all of the elect from the beginning of time to the end of time, bore the sins also of the saints of the Old Testament times. Those that the Bible says that in God's foreknowledge he was able to pass over those sins. Why? Because it would be Christ who would pay the sins for them. We're almost out of time, but it's important at least for us to notice what Paul says there in verse 15. That those for whom Christ died would then live not for themselves. And Paul says in verse 15, He died for all, that is, as we've been discussing tonight, the elect, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul comes first full circle with this idea of Christ's love compels you. Christ's love holds you fast. It holds you fast to what? You're calling to live as a Christian. It holds you fast to the way God has instructed you to live in gratitude for him and for what he has done. Christ's love binds us to his will. When we think about the fact that he came from heaven and he sought his bride, the one who had been given to him from all eternity. Think about the fact that Christ dies on the cross to make a penalty for sin, or to pay the penalty for sin, to make a way for salvation from sin. It would be absurd to then say that in our continuing life, as those granted life through faith in the gospel, that our relationship to sin would not change. Jesus did not die so that our relationship to sin and our continuing life would stay the same. And this is why Paul can say, you need to consider yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. All of the the impulses of our fallen hearts are going to compel us to live for ourselves. That's why the word of God summons us to something greater. And it says, look at the love of Christ. Look at the love of Christ and consider how it binds you to live for him. How? Well, it's, it's a life of resurrection power. Paul says in verse 15, think about the one who died and who was raised. And as he grants to us his spirit, we are given that, that same power, the spirit, who acts a, a, a personal, a personal divine being 
who is with us and who acts upon us, right? It's not just some force. It's not just an inclination. It is the third person of the divine trinity uh, who grants to us this power and this new resurrection life. And so this is not a constricted life, but it is a, a great freedom. It's a great freedom to live for God because that is the purpose for which we were created, as we talked about this morning. Created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Living for him is to invade every area of our lives. It's to uh, define every vocation uh, that has Christians occupying it. Right? We're living for the one who created beauty. We're living for the one who created science, who created learning, and who created industry. For all of those things, we can serve him in all of those areas, wanting to bring glory to him and live in the freedom that Christ grants us in knowing that his death is sufficient to save us, that we are saved there because of what he has done. He died for all, all those who had been given to him, therefore all died. When the law speaks its words of condemnation, we say, I have already died that death. I have already paid that penalty. Because I died when Christ died on the cross for me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Love so amazing, so divine, demands all that we are and all that we have. We thank you for the gospel and for the cross. May you be honored and glorified in this place and in our lives. We thank you for this word and may you apply it to our hearts and our lives. May we hide it in our hearts and think on it and meditate it throughout on it throughout this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.